Now, in our time of study this evening, I've decided to continue in the book of Exodus rather than Nehemiah, and I've done this for a couple of reasons. Now, if you remember, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before, we studied the ten plagues, and I think most of you were there. And the point that I stressed was that this was the Lord proving his supremacy, his sovereignty, his superiority over the pantheon of Egyptian deities. And as a result of this study, some great questions um, came out of this, uh, both in the question time and in some uh, later conversations that I had. So I decided, you know, tonight would be a good format to come and answer some of these questions. I've had a chance to think about it, so hopefully my answers might be a little bit better uh, than they were uh, the other Sunday night. Uh, So with that said, um, if you could open your Bible to Exodus uh, chapter 5. We're going to be flipping through uh, numerous uh, verses tonight. Um, It was some time ago since we were in uh, this portion of Scripture, this is the first appearance before Pharaoh. And I'd like to read just verse 1 and verse 2. So Exodus chapter 5, reading from verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Amen. Now the title for the lesson this evening is Questions, Queries and Quandaries. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you are the one and true living God. You are Lord over all, as we see so clearly illustrated in the portion of Scripture before us. And Father, we do ask tonight as we endeavour to comprehend your word in a deeper way that you would grant to us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand and hearts to receive. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Exodus chapter 5 verse 2, Pharaoh asks the question, Who is the Lord? Oh, little did he realize that this question was about to be answered in the most amazing and comprehensive way. This particular query is really the heartbeat of the plague drama. It reveals who the Lord is. It is Yahweh's declaration that he is the one true and living God. There is none like him. Exodus 9.14 says, For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now the plagues reveal the absolute sovereignty and supremacy of the Lord. This is revealed both to the Egyptians and to the Israelites. They would be left with no doubt as to who the Lord is. And as we endeavour to answer some of the questions that were posed about the plagues, as we strive to understand this portion of Scripture in greater detail, it would serve us well to remember this central question. Who is the Lord? 
This is our, our anchor points in understanding the plague drama. So tonight I want to endeavour to answer uh, four questions that were raised. Some of these are difficult to be dogmatic about, but God willing, the attempt to provide answers will increase our understanding of the plague drama and help us to further grasp who the Lord is. So question number one. And this was asked by by Brother Steve, how long did the plagues last? I've entitled this the question of duration. Now this first question is impossible to be completely dogmatic about. For a definite period of time in the scriptures is not revealed. But there are a couple of clues. Exodus 7, 7 informs us that Moses was 80 years old at the beginning of the plague drama. And we know that this age was exact, because in the same verse, Aaron's age is also given as 83. In Deuteronomy 34, verse 7, we are told that Moses was 120 years old when he died. So 120 minus 80 is 40. Numbers 14.33 tells us that the people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And what this tells us is that the plagues could not have lasted any longer than one year. It doesn't fit. So that narrows it down significantly. Within the plague drama, three periods of time are given. So the first plague lasted for seven days. That was the water being turned to blood. The darkness, the ninth plague, lasted for three days. And the Passover was all over in one night. So as we can see, these were all short periods of time. Now the Passover, of course, is a fixed date. In the Jewish calendar, the month Nisan And this is in our March, April. And there is an interesting piece of information recorded in Exodus chapter 9. So turn there if you would, Exodus chapter 9. And I want to read verse 31 and 32. Exodus chapter 9 verse 31 says, And the flax and the barley were smitten, For the barley was in the ear, and the flax was bold. But the wheat and the rye were not smitten, for they were not grown up. So this is speaking of the seventh plague, which is the hail. So we know that the flax and the barley, which were destroyed from this plague, are in bloom in February. So it's the February time period when this plague hits. It also speaks about the wheat and the rye which were not destroyed. Now these bloom a month or two later and that is why they weren't destroyed by the hail. Also when the eighth plague was sent, the swarm of locusts, God said they would destroy every plant of the land that the hail had left behind. So this tells us that it shortly followed the hail. So with all of this information, 
the time frame between the seventh plague, which was the hail, hit February, and the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, the Passover, was no more than two months, possibly closer to one month. So I think it's logical to conclude that the plagues themselves did not run for all that long. And my reasoning is this, you know, the devastation that they caused could not be withstood by any population for an extended period. If these plagues were running for six months at a time, it would completely destroy civilization. So I think the plagues themselves were short. But what is difficult to determine is how much time there was between the varying plagues. How long was there between the frogs and the lice, between the lice and the flies? And all that we can go off is the time between the seventh and the tenth plague. And if we take this as our standard, that is four plagues completed in a one-month minimum or two-months maximum time period, if we took that as our standard, this would mean there was a minimum time of two and a half months or a maximum time of five months. So as I said, I cannot be dogmatic. It's definitely less than a year, but it's probably around four to five months from start to finish. So let's now bring the central question to this query. Who is the Lord? What time frame would best help reveal the glory of the Lord? And I would suggest the shorter the better. For man is prone to forget what happens over time. And the Egyptians would be prone to explain this all away if there were large time intervals between the plagues. So that's what I think about the time period of the plagues. So with the time frame roughly set, it leads to a second question, and that is the question of the death dilemma. If the animals are killed in plague five, how are we to understand the further mention of animals? Do you know what? I received this question a few years ago when I was teaching at Awana, which is a primary school age group in Grafton. And uh, a year four kid asked me this question, and I was, I've never thought of that before. So I thought I would answer that uh, tonight. In, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 6, It says that all of the cattle died. So let's read that. Exodus chapter 9 verse 6 says, And the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died. But of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. So we need to remember that this is the fifth plague. Yet in the seventh plague we are told that all of the animals who were not under shelter would die. They would be hit by this hail. And then in Exodus 14, despite both of these plagues, Pharaoh still possessed 600 horse-drawn chariots pursuing the Israelites towards the Red Sea. How are we to reconcile this? Didn't all the animals die in the fifth plague? 
And we just determined that there wasn't a great time period between the plagues. It's not that all of the animals were killed in plague five, and then there was five years for all of the animals to replenish. That's not an option. So how do we explain this? Well, I think there are three possible explanations. Number one, the animals were sheltered. So in the hail plague, a warning is given that all of the animals in the field who were not placed under shelter would die. And it has been suggested that this may have applied to the fifth plague also. For in verse 3 of chapter 9, it says the cattle which is in the field. So perhaps there was sheltered livestock who was not in the field. And this kept them from being struck with this disease. We see varying animals sheltered throughout the Old Testament, particularly those who belong to the king. For example, we see in 2 Chronicles 32.28 that King Hezekiah had stalls for all manners of beasts. And in 2 Chronicles 9.25, King Solomon had 4,000 stalls for his horses. And there are many examples, so perhaps this explains it. Now, the second possibility is that Pharaoh took the Israelites' animals. In the fifth plague, it's made clear in chapter 9, verse 6, the verse we read, that the cattle of the Israelites was spared from this deadly pestilence. Now, obviously, this would have irritated the Pharaoh that his animals were dead and the Israelites' animals are alive. And may and maybe he confiscated the Israelites' livestock in order to replenish his own economy. Or he may have bought in cattle from elsewhere. So that's the second possible explanation. And the third is defining the term all, which we see in verse 6, all the cattle. The term all does not always mean everyone or everything, but can mean all sorts or many of them. Now it is a generalization. Now we use this term in this way all the time. Now, do you use your mobile phone much? Oh, I use it all the time. Now, when we hear that, we don't interpret it that the individual uses their phone 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. No, they sleep while using their phone. They're in the shower while using their phone and so forth. And perhaps this is how this term all is to be understood. Now, just like when we read in Exodus 7.24, and all the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink. And we know that this doesn't mean literally everybody for babies couldn't dig, the crippled couldn't dig, the elderly couldn't dig. But rather it is a statement that declares the majority were involved. And that is how we can regard the use of all in the fifth plague. So whatever option you prefer is fine. Maybe you want to combine a couple of the explanations. But what is clear is that there is no contradiction. This is another attempt to discredit the Bible, and again, this attempt fails.
Now, the third question, and this was asked by Pastor Peter. Now, is there any extra biblical support for the plagues? The question of documentation. If you know anything about Egyptian history and trying to figure out how secular and biblical history fits together in this time period, you will know it's very complicated. And I am certainly no expert. So it's hard to figure out the exact time, who the Pharaoh was, and secular history is strikingly silent about Israel in Egypt. And that is not surprising, is it? Because you would hardly expect the ruler to document how his empire was devastated by these plagues and how it was that he lost his full brigade of elite soldiers and all of his chariots while pursuing a group of runaway slaves. This is not the type of thing you would write down. So silence is certainly not surprising. But I have done some digging And I've discovered some fascinating documents. How reliable or credible they are, I I cannot be certain, but nevertheless, it's very intriguing. Uh, There is a document entitled uh, The the I Pure Papyrus. Uh, This was an ancient document that describes a great disaster that took place in ancient Egypt. And its description is particularly fascinating. And I've given you some snippets from this document for our purposes. And it included these five statements. Number one, plague is throughout the land. Blood is everywhere. The river is blood. Number two, all animals, their hearts weep. Cattle moan. Number three, The entire palace is without its revenues. Grain has perished on every side. Number four, the land is without lights. Number five, the children of princes are dashed against the walls. He who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. It is groaning throughout the land, mingled with lamentations. Now, there are some striking similarities within this document compared to the plague narrative as recorded in Scripture. And, you know, perhaps there is a correlation. You know, throughout my reading, I've come across some other interesting pieces of information. There was one writer who spoke about the sun being covered for days. Happened in the ninth plague. Burial sites have been uncovered, which was full of young boys. This could be explained by the Passover. Another fascinating piece of information is that in the line of the pharaohs, there are times when the son of Pharaoh did not take over the throne and no reasonable explanation is put forward. Could it not be that his son lost his life at the Passover? And an interesting hymn was uncovered on one ancient pyramid which said this, It is the king who will be judged with him whose name is hidden on that day of slaying the firstborn. Sounds like the biblical accounts. So once again, you know, I will stress that I cannot be dogmatic about this historical information because I'm not an historian and I'm not an archaeologist. 
But there does seem to be shreds of evidence that seems to be a little bit more than a coincidence. But what I want to stress is that even if there is no historical evidence, the Bible doesn't need that. We must understand that. You know, if the Bible is proven by history, that's all well and good. But if history says the Bible is wrong, the history is wrong, not the Bible. We must uh, understand that. You know, if something from the secular world contradicts the Bible, it doesn't mean the Bible is wrong. You know, this has happened time and time again. New discoveries are made and it's, oh, hang on, the Bible actually is right. And if there's something that doesn't make sense, it's because we lack the knowledge, we lack the understanding, or maybe both. So that's the third question. Now, the fourth question is, why ten plagues? Now, the question of design. Now, have you ever pondered the question, you know, why ten plagues? Is there any significance with the number 10? Why not 7? Why didn't God do it with one plague? He could have, and, and yet he did not. Also, why choose plagues? Why not do it another way? Why not send the death angel and wipe them all out like he did later on? Why use creation? Is there any significance? Now, the number 10 occurs numerous times throughout the Bible. And the most famous is the Ten Commandments. And this is recorded twice for us in the Old Testament. Once in the book of Exodus and once in the book of Deuteronomy. And I want to show you something very interesting. So turn to Exodus chapter 20. And we'll read the first recording. Exodus uh, chapter 20. And we're going to read the commandment about the Sabbath. So Exodus chapter 20, and we will read from verse 8, which says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. I want you to notice The reason given for keeping the Sabbath, it is the creation pattern. So the Lord rested on the seventh and we are to do the same. Now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is the second recording of the Ten Commandments. And again, I want to read about the keeping of the Sabbath. Because there's something within this account that is different. It's Deuteronomy chapter 5, and let's read from verse 12. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. 
But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Now this is the same Sabbath instruction. But this time look at what is to be remembered. It is their deliverance from Egypt that was brought about by the plagues. So it's creation in the first set of Ten Commandments and the plagues in the second Remembering creation and then remembering their redemption. Is there a link? That's the question. Now I'm sure you probably uh, don't remember and that's okay. But at the beginning of this study of the book of Exodus, I stress that this book is built upon Genesis. These two books are intertwined. And one of the crucial themes is in the first chapter of Exodus. And this is when the Pharaoh is endeavouring to halt the rapid reproduction of the Israelites. Remember, he tried all of these wicked plans. And at the time, I highlighted that this was an attack against the creation mandates. The mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Here was Pharaoh attacking the creation order. And now, in the plagues, God uses the creation as his weapon to attack. Creation is one of God's greatest demonstrations of his power and his brilliance. Psalm 19 makes that clear. And in this case, God shows his power and his brilliance, not by creating, but as one author puts it, de-creating Egypt. And the ten plagues are linked to the creation. It is interesting that the number of plagues in Exodus correspond to the ten divine utterances by which the world was created and ordered. Ten times in Genesis 1 it says, And God said. Verse 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, 28, 29. Ten times and there are ten plagues. And notice with me the following parallels between the Exodus plague and the six days of creation. This was pointed out by one scholar. He said this, On day one, God separated light from the darkness, but in the ninth plague, light was blotted out. On day two, God gathered the water into one place, but in the first plague, the water was turned into blood. On day three, God made vegetation to grow on the land, but in the seventh and eighth plagues, he destroyed Egypt's crops. On day four, he put two great lights in the heavens, but with the ninth plague, they ceased to shine. 
On day five, God made the waters swarm with creatures, but the first and second plagues ended with the death of fish and frogs. On day six, God made animals and people, but the third through to sixth plagues affected, uh, sorry, afflicted both man and beast until God finally killed every firstborn in Egypt. So as you can see, the plagues were certainly a de-creation. And this inseparable link between creation and the plagues reveal why the Lord did it this way. Why he used creation and why there was ten plagues. And what we must understand is how these plagues reveal the true supremacy and glory of the Lord. You know, remember we considered the ten gods that it confronted directly. But I want to show you something else that that ties back into this. I've got three things. How the plagues, you know, reveal the greatness of God. And number one, it confronted Pharaoh. By bringing this chaos of the plagues out of the order of creation, it was a direct assault on the Egyptian way of life. In fact, it was a direct attack of Pharaoh. The Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was a god and that he had the power to maintain cosmic order, to keep the environment stable, maintain harmony and balance. And they called this the Ma'at. And it was Pharaoh's responsibility to control the Ma'at. And here, here within the plagues, the Lord completely and utterly devastates the natural order. He turns it upon his head. There, there is chaos. And this is a direct attack against the Pharaoh. He thought he was God. He thought that he was in control of the Miats. And the Lord again proves his supremacy that he is the Lord. This is why the Lord chose to use things from creation, for it was a direct attack against Pharaoh. Number two, it reveals the long-suffering of the Lord. Why why ten plagues? Why not one? Why not two? Well, this this declares loudly the Lord's long-suffering and mercy, doesn't it? He gave Pharaoh ample opportunities to repent. Remember, even before the plagues, there was the drama where Moses' serpent swallowed the other serpent. And yet Pharaoh hardened his heart. He had opportunity upon opportunity. This magnifies the glorious divine patience. Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And this is revealed in the plague drama. And beloved, I don't know about you, but I am sure glad that our God is slow to anger. That he is great in mercy and is incredibly long-suffering. That he gives you and I the chance to repent. That he doesn't just immediately judge us when we sin. Oh, how this declares the greatness of our God's. And number three, the plagues brought God great glory. 
You know, the ultimate reason for the design of the ten plagues is that this was the way to bring God the greatest glory. And that is God's purpose in everything that he does, to bring glory to himself. And his tremendous display of power that humbled the Egyptians and this miraculous deliverance of his people brought him great glory. His fame spread abroad. People knew his name. Centuries later, in the book of 1 Samuel, the fourth chapter, it says this, And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hands of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. They still remembered. No, the plagues made God known. Now, it declared through the heavenly megaphone that Yahweh is Lord, that He is the one true and living God, that He is almighty and powerful, and it brought Him great glory and magnified His holy name. That is why the Lord unleashed ten plagues, and that is the point of all that God does. Whether that's creation, whether that's redemption, it is to bring glory to Himself. And beloved, that is to be our chief motivation in all that we do. In all that we say, to bring honour and glory to our great God. You know the verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the question is, is your life doing that? Is my life doing that? Do we make our God look great from the way that we live, the way that we behave, the way that we act? Do we make others think higher of our God? For that is what it means to bring Him glory. Does our testimony at work, our testimony on the sport field bring God glory? Does our marriage, does the way that we parent, does that bring God glory? My friend, examine your heart this evening. Now ask the piercing questions. Ask for the Spirit to reveal the areas of your life that makes others think less of God rather than higher. Now in all that we do, whatever that may be, however mundane that may be, we are to strive to bring God glory. That is to be our motivation in everything. For according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that is the chief duty of man, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Amen.